Welcome to Black Lines and Billables, a podcast about legal technology and innovation and law firm associate success and development. Today, I'm excited to be exploring an intriguing development in the landscape of legal tech and innovation. I'm joined by Dan Linna, professor and director of legal R&D, the Center for Legal Services Innovation at the College of Law of Michigan State University, which we will forgive him for because he's also an undergrad and law school graduate of the University of Michigan, where he currently teaches as an adjunct. Uh Go Blue. Uh, Two weeks ago, Dan, with the assistance of a number of student researchers, launched Phase 1, Version 1.0 of the Legal Services Innovation Index, consisting of a catalog of law firm innovations and also a law firm innovation index, which is based on searches of law firm websites for indicia of innovation. And while in the past there have been some niche efforts to informally catalog or index certain aspects of law firm innovation or tech adoption, Dan's Innovation Index is the first effort of which I'm aware that aspires over time to map the large law firm innovation landscape in its entirety. So for legal tech nerds like me, it's a highly significant development and one that we're very excited to learn more about. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Let's begin just by telling our listeners a little bit about you, your background, and your role with legal R&D at Michigan State. Sure. I've been here at Michigan State now for three years, and I'm the director of Legal R&D, the Center for Legal Services Innovation, and I'm also a professor of law, and I teach innovation and technology classes, including quantitative analysis for lawyers, entrepreneurial lawyering, uh, a professional responsibility course that's really focused on technology and regulation of lawyers in the 21st century, and a couple of our courses. And as you pointed out, I've been an adjunct law professor at the University of Michigan as well, And I teach negotiation there, and I'm teaching for the first time a legal technology and innovation class starting in January at University of Michigan Law School. Before I joined Michigan State as an equity partner at Honigman, Miller, Schwartz & Cohn, based in Detroit, I was a litigator, did a lot of supply chain litigation, automotive supply chain, uh, and a few other types of of matters while I was there. I'd started teaching as an adjunct professor at the University of Michigan Law School while I was at Honigman, and then went up to Michigan State University College of Law, and I worked there with Dan Katz and Renee Kanaki. And before I went to law school, I was, uh, well, I got a master's degree in public policy and administration, and and that's kind of where my love for data and data-driven decision-making came. But I also worked as a consultant and a developer and an IT manager. And uh, at some point, I had to decide kind of if I was going to, I'd always, my whole life thought I'd go to law school at some point, and I was working in this tech career and and uh, then made the transition, went to law school, kind of really didn't do much with technology and data for a little while, but um, I definitely, it has come back into my career after I've been practicing for a little while, definitely saw the opportunities to make better use of data and technology in the delivery of legal services. And, and that's what has led me to Michigan State University College of Law. Excellent. Well, it's no wonder hearing that background that you're doing such interesting, innovative things. Um, why don't we begin? Give our listeners just a quick snapshot of the Legal Services uh, Innovation Index. Just give them a high level view. What is it? And we'll dive into the details in a minute. Yes. Well, so as you pointed out, there is a lot of talk about innovation and technology in the in the industry right now. But it's mostly anecdotes. And, and so what I wanted to do is really create a first, a catalog of the innovations that we're seeing in the legal industry. So I've got a catalog of the different products and um, practice groups or innovation entities that law firms have created and kind of group those together in, into different categories. And then uh, to try to really 
create an index or a measure of what's happening as far as innovation across all the large law firms, have an index of law firm innovation, looking at the AMLA 200, the global 100, and the top 30 Canadian firms, looking across various uh, categories of innovation uh, and looking at their website to try to measure uh, what is going on in those firms in terms of innovation. Interesting. We'll, we'll, we'll explore both of those in, in just a minute. Tell me a little bit about you know, how did this project come to be? Where did it come from? Yeah, well, it really started when I was at Stanford Law School for the Future Law Conference in early 2016. And Jim Sandman gave a talk there. He's the president of the Legal Services Corporation and formerly had led a large law firm in Washington, D.C. So he's very familiar with the big law marketplace. And one of the things that he talked about is to drive technology adoption, which he thinks will help improve uh, access to legal services, access to justice. We ought to rank law firms, not just on revenue and profits, but rank them on their adoption of technology. Now, that was in 2016. And I thought, okay, someone's going to jump on that. That's a really great idea. And I could see how you'd put that together. But nothing had happened. And early this year, I was back out at Stanford again for the 2017 Future Law Conference. And Jim brought this up again. And I was sitting there in the audience and I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And I already had a few projects lined up. I've been working on some projects with courts and law firms and legal departments this summer. But I thought, well, let me get some research assistants to work with me. And what would a minimum viable product look like? Because we really don't have anything now. So how could I gather some information that one would use to start assessing law firms on, on innovation? And, and uh, so that's where it really started. I, I, I love that you're kind of uh, putting your money where your mouth is on the tech front by invoking you know, MVP and, and le- kind of lean thinking and design thinking uh, and trying to get something out in the world to be reacted to early. Why, why don't you tell us, therefore, like, that's, that's a great segue Talk to us a little bit about phase one of this project, kind of what it is, what it's not. You've got some very clear kind of health warnings on your website about, about what you're trying to do, what you're not trying to do. Um, give, tee that up for us, kind of what, your, what, what the existing early MVP product is, and then in, we'll talk in a minute about kind of what the vision for the future is. Sure. So the two components, again, are kind of the, the catalog of law firm innovations and then the law firm innovation index. And the catalog was really just looking, I had just finished reading Jordan Furlong's book, and his book is an example of, he had named some different law firms who are doing innovative things and gives the, the usual caveat that this is not exhaustive. And you know, Ron Friedman had done kind of a similar thing. And so there are a handful of people who had talked about innovative law firms, and there are a few awards and things like that. So you get a, a sense that something's happening, but no one had tried to pull that all together into a list. So the first thing I thought is that, well, I'm going to look at all these different awards and books and articles and start collecting all this. And I'm not going to just repeat it. I want to start categorizing it and organizing it and creating an ontology of innovation. And this somewhat relates to a law review article I wrote about legal startups, trying to organize legal startups in these different categories. And one of the breakthroughs was on that part of it was when I was at the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium annual meeting. I gave a talk out there this spring. And I was talking with Carla Swansburg, who's the director of practice innovation, pricing and knowledge at Blake Castles and Graydon in Toronto. And she thought, well, that's a great idea. And I spoke to a lot of people in the industry and I had a lot of support. People pushing me forward and said, I ought to do this. Carla did even more than that. She said, 
we're doing this research, and I know a lot of law firms and legal departments are doing that same kind of research to gather that information. I'll contribute it to you to help you get started seeding the catalog. So she gave me that information, and you know, we vetted it all and looked at all the websites. And again, we created some categories to to try to make it easier to search through this. So if you're a M&A lawyer uh, in the UK, you can kind of look and see, well, what are the other UK firms doing as far as creating M&A innovations, right? And organize it that way. The, the law firm search part of it was just the realization that this, the innovation catalog tells you one part of it. It highlights some of the, the firms and how they're innovating, what they're doing in concrete ways, objective ways. But I, to meet Jim's call to action, I wanted to try to figure out, well, how do we look at the AMLA 200 and Canadian top 30 and the global 100? That's when I came up with the idea of looking at their websites. What are they telling clients on their websites? And the best way I thought to look at that in a short period of time to, to analyze this was to use advanced Google searches, which could target the actual website. So I came up with these 10 different categories of, of uh, innovation, starting with alternative fees all the way up through everyone's favorite topic today, artificial intelligence, right, and a few different categories in between, and then ran these searches across their website. And I, and I point out the caveats. You alluded to this. I mean, uh, for example... If you have a blog internally on your site, you might get more hits because you have more content, things like that. And there are quite a few caveats, right? But like, like most research, the point isn't to boil the ocean. It's to make a contribution. And over time, you see more and more research and you start seeing convergence and we learn more about the world. This is descriptive research, really. How do we learn about how do we describe what's going on in the world out there? Uh, and then the last caveat I'll just hit on briefly is, is this really isn't a ranking, right? I'm not trying to rank the law firms. And the main reason being because I think the innovation that we really need to see in the marketplace is the kind of bottom-up, innovative culture, very client-focused innovation. And these terms, these searches in the catalog are quite likely a proxy, and we, I'd expect to see a correlation between that sort of thing going on internally in a law firm. Uh, that sort of organizational culture, but we're not measuring that directly, at least not in this phase of the innovation index. So that's one of the key reasons why I'm caveating here. This really shouldn't be seen as a ranking of of innovation in law firms. Yeah, it it seems like a, a great first step, a way to kind of begin a conversation. So so focusing on the catalog aspect of the project. Um, you talked about how Blake's was able to seed it with some of their research currently, and I know it's you, you know online and in your materials, you're you're very clear to say that this is an MVP and we're just getting something out in the world to be reacted to. But currently, you know, how have you gone about culling what's out there, deciding kind of what's in and, and what's out? Like, talk to us a little bit about the the vetting process and how things actually make it up into the catalog during this phase one. Sure. The what we've done is is really use these other sources to identify some of the innovations that are out there, and we've done some of our own searching as well. But then once we identify something that's on a law firm's website, we try to we do our best to get as much information we can about what exactly the law firm is doing. There are plenty of substantive legal innovations. I mean, one of the most famous ones is like the poison pill, for example. We weren't looking for innovations like that. We're looking for innovations in the delivery of of services. So that was the one of the first distinctions we had to make. Is this something about change, somehow creating a bankruptcy-proof vehicle or something like that, a, a substantive legal innovation versus delivery of services? The other thing is we wanted to see 
some manifestation of offering, you know, productizing knowledge, offering a service, something that's actually being done and offered to clients right now versus just exploring different tools. And so we're seeing a fair amount of exploration between legal startups and law firms, for example, right now. But we wanted to, st- to get to the stage of where something had actually been built and implemented and was was client-facing and being offered to clients. So those were those are really kind of two of the, the really important distinctions as we're putting the catalog together. That's helpful to understand. On, on the index side, um, so you've set forth uh, 10 indicators that are that are the kind of buckets or categories for which you're searching on on those google searches were those categories you developed uh, you alluded a minute ago that maybe those are that's kind of an existing taxonomy in the legal technology space or or is this something you and your team put together this was something that i put together working with my team i mean this builds on uh, there's a lot of pieces to this where you know if i had to put together a law review article which i kind of thought about doing but that would have delayed release of it. I may still do that, but I could write written a lot, even just about coming up with these categories. And a lot of it has to do with just knowledge of the marketplace and some of the writing I've been doing on my blog and having participated in different conferences and things like that. And, and, and building our curriculum here at Michigan state as well, right? Seeing that these are, are some of the disciplines that are, are driving a lot of the, the innovation in the marketplace. Excellent. And just for the benefit of our readers, let, let's go ahead and just tick through them so people know kind of the things we're talking about. So I, and correct me if, if this list is incorrect, but I, I saw you guys are looking for alternative fees and the pursuit of alternative fee arrangements, uh, project management, process improvement slash innovation frameworks, knowledge management, automation, automation basics, I think it's called, data analytics, AI, uh, legal ops teams, which we can maybe clarify a bit, proactive law, similarly, in, in blockchain um, as, as the large categories. Talk to us a, for a second, the legal ops in the proactive law, how do, how do you think about those categories? Yeah, well, I think legal operations was a kind of a proxy for picking up what the departments are doing, the corporate legal departments. And of course, we've seen the growth of legal operations and corporate legal operations consortium. I was trying to pick up on that and this idea of we have a search term there, collaborative disaggregation. Some of this is a little bit of an exercise in trying to define the innovations we're talking about and to get us using consistent terminology. So that was an an opportunity there to try to use the term collaborative disaggregation, for example, to talk about working, being client-facing, using language, the law firms using language that the corporate legal departments are using to try to signal this desire to to want to work together, to collaborate. So that was one of the things that we were trying to do with, with the legal operations category. Proactive law is really a nod to... The idea, the many opportunities out there for us to be more proactive and not so reactive as lawyers. And Jeff Carr is someone, for example, who talks much more about this, uh, about being proactive. And, and George Seidel at the University of Michigan Business School, our students read read about this. He's written a couple of great books about this idea, all the opportunities to be uh, proactive and engage in, in preventive law, but also promotive law. And this idea of lawyers trying to prevent problems from the, before they happen. And we can definitely make better use of data and technology to do that. But then the promotive side is, is really requiring the understanding of your client's business. 
And so you, you being the kind of lawyer who your client wants you at the table early because you have some value to contribute because you really understand their business and the problems they're trying to solve and, and, and thinking about how they can best um, build their business in the current uh, legal regime. It's an important point. It actually it reminds me. So I, I was a practitioner for, for some years at, at Davis Polk here in New York and in London. In our financial institutions group, you know, in the wake of Dodd-Frank, um, has put together a, a number of kind of technology resources, one of which is a, a Volcker Rule portal, where essentially clients sign up to this online portal that kind of, and, I, and I'm probably going to butcher this, but I think in some sort of automated way, kind of collects a bunch of information about them and tries to prophylactically head off potential compliance mm-hmm. issues as, as, and, as and when the different aspects of, of the rules and regulatory rulemakings happen over time. Um, so it's certainly a, a, a kind of a, a, a valuable new frontier in, in practice of law that it's not so much let's wait until something breaks and try to fix it. I mean, I think there are a couple of, of points, too, to suss out in, in what you're saying. I think sometimes when we talk about innovation as well, people tend to think it's all just about technology. And some firms have kind of had the approach or some lawyers maybe where, well, we'll just bring in the technologist and they can tell us what to do or or we'll, we'll just AI that. We'll bolt on the latest technology solution. And when you start thinking about proactive law and a couple of these other categories, you begin to realize that we really need what we call at Legal R&D, T-shaped lawyers. So you need to have that deep, substantive legal expertise and then start learning about technology and process improvement, project management, these other disciplines to help us provide greater value to client. And I think that's a really important connection here is that um, while we really need the help of people who have deep, uh, deep skills in technology and data science and things like that, the, the understanding of the, the, the legal issues and the client's problems in business is, is really central to a lot of the things that we're talking about here. There's so many additional ways to add value that you will not capture if your approach is just leaving it all to the technologists. I recall from reviewing the website and, and just poking around uh, on the materials and the tableau myself, I mean, you, you anticipate some further phases of the project where law firms, I believe, are going to be volunteering their own additions to it, and it's going to kind of be more well-refined and start to become, over time, more comprehensive. What, what is the, kind of the roadmap, the vision uh, for, of the future, either for the remainder of phase one or moving on to phases two and three? We have law firms right now submitting innovations for addition to the catalog, and there's a button at the bottom of the innovation catalog page so that if any law firm uh, or anyone really sees that we're missing something in the catalog, I'd encourage them to use the form on the LegaltechInnovation.com website uh, using the button at the bottom of the catalog page to submit those innovations. And so we've been we've received quite a few of additions already. We're going to vet those and add those to the catalog. So we'll be kind of updating the versions uh, 1.01 and, and onward, if you will, as we make some additions to the catalog. Another thing that uh, we're going to do is we're looking at doing some work on refining the searches a little bit, some work that we want to do on normalizing some of the data so that we have some better comparisons, kind of controlling the control a little bit for the number of UK firms that we've done searches for, for example, uh, where we're going not quite as deep because we, well, there aren't as many law firms there and we're only touching on the global 100 to pick up the UK law firms, say, versus the AMLA. 200. As also as part of phase one, we're doing this same sort of catalog of all the 200 plus law schools. And there are some 
like just like with the the law firms, there are different lists of a handful of innovative law schools. You see Stanford, Michigan State, Georgetown, Suffolk, uh, Vermont, Chicago, Kent, uh, Northwestern, a few other schools listed as as innovating in this space, but not much discussion about they have a curriculum of classes like we do here at Michigan State. Uh, do they have an LLM program? Do they have one clinical uh, program? Are they an incubator for startups? What have you? So there's, there's a need to better define, to describe what's happening in the law school side as well. So we'll do that. On the, for looking at the law firms, we want to start gathering, getting input from the law firms as far as what they're doing in different areas. For example, do they have a chief innovation officer? Do they have an innovation partner? Do they have an innovation committee? They say they do project management. How many project managers do they actually have on their team? Looking at them, well, what's the ratio of project managers to lawyers? Things like that. We're looking at working with some other entities who are, who are going to potentially help us with that as well to, to capture that information. And then we would like to talk to clients. And that would be kind of adding a little bit of a, a subjective element to this, but an empirical basis, of course, in, in properly surveying them to find out where where their law firms are innovating. And so those are those are a few of the things. We've got a few other things that we're kicking around looking at here, but kind of keeping in mind what we were just talking about, about uh, looking for what's really going to produce value, what problems are we going to solve, that those are where we really see the the most important opportunities in the short run. That's a nice segue to, to another question I had, which is, is, is there a plan to have a, a kind of a subjective curation or, or validation mechanism? And, and here I, w- I was thinking most about the index itself where you're using things like Google searches to populate the index. But I guess at the same point stands on, on the catalog side as well. Uh, so getting clients involved to know what they're using and what they, what they see value in is clearly a way to kind of – help to uh, vet some of these purported innovations alongside of others that maybe aren't quite so innovative or aren't quite so realized. But is, do you have a plan for the project to have this, have a curation mechanism um, built in? Yeah, well, I think probably the client surveys is going to be the best way to do that. I think the trends over time will be really interesting. And you think about the different types of research. And right now, what we're really talking about is mostly descriptive research. We want to see what's happening in the marketplace. And I think that adds a lot of value because there are law firms that uh, there's a partner or someone, or maybe it's the CEO who's trying to drive change. And this descriptive information about what's going on in the marketplace is going to be helpful to be able to lead that change forward. Uh, Law schools are looking and ought to be looking more. Our law students, and when our law students are figuring out where the opportunities are or when they're assessing different firms, they should be looking at this information to, to determine uh, which law firms are, are really trying to invest in their future, what they're doing in those spaces. I think the trend data is going to be really interesting here because to the point of needing to experiment, quite a few of these things will fail. We would expect that. We see that in every other industry. And we're going to, in, a, in the firms that are doing this correctly, we'll do it in small steps. So they keep learning along the way, which will make mean that the failures are small. And that's kind of the whole point of fail fast, right? I'd like to say learn fast for our lawyer colleagues. But is that, you know, you keep moving along that. But as we, we track this, these trends over time, I suspect that we'll start to see uh, different initiatives and efforts that are, that are working in, in other areas where maybe things don't seem to work. And 
it'll help generate uh, new ideas, new ways of, of trying things, but also drive best practice and standards where we see successes. It, it will be great to kind of watch how the how, how the catalog and the index changes over time and to, and to help identify those trends just as a starting point so that you know we have something from which to extrapolate. Let's talk a little bit about this first phase one snapshot. Given the, the first generation of information that you guys have had analyzed, uh, visualized, one of the nice things about Tableau is it lets you kind of put the information into tables and get a quick visual snapshot of what you're looking at. What what is the current phase one version one of this project? What is that information telling us? And has there been anything surprising about what you've kind of seen as you've analyzed the results? Well, I think one of the interesting things about this is again, so much of this was just focused on the descriptive effort. Frankly, when I first started, I thought that I was going to be able to gather the data and then spend a fair amount of time conducting some analysis about it. Uh, it turned into that we have so much data and we have a lot of different trends and pulled it together that just the descriptive information, getting it out there uh, was enough meat to kind of launch this thing. And Bill Henderson and a few other people have already started digging into it and doing some analysis, and we look forward to doing more of it. And I think one of the things, I mean, generated definitely some hypotheses before doing this because uh, I, you know, I wouldn't want to release research like this without kind of having a scent for some you know, some internal validity and, and checking to make sure that we, we, we're actually measuring what we think we're measuring. I think one of the things you see, if you look at the index, the, the Google hits, when you look at the different firms when they're grouped together on the different categories. So you look at look at the AMLA 1 through 50 group, and you see kind of a trend across most of these where you see more um, discussion of some of these different topics uh, on their on their websites about different items, right? And so now some of that was was expected. Some of this is a relationship to the size of the law firms, w- without a doubt, right? So um, one of the things we want to do is to try to control for that a, a, a little bit more. But you also saw some some what was perhaps a little bit unexpected trends, um, where, for example, knowledge management, the the AMLA fifty one to one hundred firms were double. Uh, the number of hits of the AMLA one through fifty firms, and right? so I think there's definitely some things to dig into more. More there, it's really interesting you say that because when I pulled up the information and I was just looking, for example, within the AMLA one through fifty, um, it almost appeared like there was actually a pretty clear gulf between the firms like you know Wachtell, Sullivan Cromwell, Davis Polk, Cleary, Simpson. There, there's an average line that goes down the middle of that chart and you know what you might consider to be the you know the top t- 5 or top 10 US law firms were kind of all on the left side all below average on that front whereas you had others that were you know creating the average by being way over on the right and it was it, the the distinction there the categorical distinction between those firms actually even within the AMLA 150 kind of s- struck me a bit what what do you think accounts for the fact that and this dovetails with the point you just made about the AMLA 50 through 100. What, what do you think accounts for that difference? Is there something that is, for example, more offensive than defensive about legal technology such that the abs- the tip top of the market incumbents don't feel quite the need to get involved and, 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 and it's used as a, an offensive business generation tool? Like, for example, the blockchain references on some of these law firms' websites. To what do you attribute that sort of difference? 
No, you know, I think it's too early to say for sure. I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with the, with the, any of the generalizations that you might have thrown out as possible explanations. In part, mostly because we don't have enough data to look at right now. I think one of the shifts we're seeing here is that generally in the marketplaces, there was a lot of talk about cost and really focus on cost, driving efficiency. And we're seeing more and more legal departments and law firms talk about now the opportunities for greater quality and better outcomes. And you talk to some of the sophisticated lawyers about M&A transactions, and, and on this, this really, this thinking can apply anywhere, the additional value that a lawyer can add. All lawyers should be thinking this way. It's not just driving down costs, but if you could show Let's talk about M&A. If you could show your client that, uh, it, let's say it usually costs $5 million for a particular type of, of transaction. If you have the data to show your client that you can use better diligence, expert systems in drafting purchase agreements, and, and you have the data on how to negotiate better purchase agreements, and all the different ways you could use better processes and data across that value stream and show the return on investment, I mean, wouldn't they be willing to pay more, perhaps a lot more for you to do that if you could eliminate or, or reduce certain risks in, in, in really important transactions? And I, I think the answer is yes, there's a lot of opportunities in those spaces. And you know, I guess I, I think I'll just caution that too. The whole reason for not ranking is, is we don't know everything that some of these law firms are doing in, in certain of these areas. I know law firms that are doing things similar to what I just talked about in the, in the M&A space. I don't know that it really quite shows up on their website yet, but they're they're exploring how to do this with their clients, how to generate not just cheaper legal services, but better outcomes, greater value to the client, for which the client will pay more. There was another a kind of broad trend that I think uh, you may have actually even pointed out either in your talk at the Legal Hackers Conference where you gave a preview of this project or uh, potentially in one of your blog posts talking about the difference between the UK and US firms uh, and how the hit rates at UK firms was significantly higher. Talk to me a little bit about that kind of early impression, the, the, the difference on the other side of the, the Atlantic. Well, there definitely seems to be a trend of the UK firms being out in front. And now here's where the catalog is really nice because that's the objective measure here. And, and I mean, a lot of the resources that we looked at are are, are U.S.-based resources. Um, and so, if anything, we would think that we may have been undercounting the resources in the U.K. So, we've got the, the website hits showing more uh, activity, more discussion about things like artificial intelligence and alternative fees and analytics at the U.K. firms. Okay. Well, then what happens when we look at the innovation catalog? When we look at the catalog, we see that the U.K., is out in front of the U.S. firms by a sizable margin. I mean, we've got, of the catalog entries, uh, 99 of them are from the U.K. and 78 from the U.S. And we've got a smaller number of law firms in the U.K. And again, if anything, we I would think that given the way we gathered this data, we might be undercounting what's going on in the U.K. since most of our the resources that we started with were, were mostly focused uh, on the U.S. So those are the objective that's the objective data that we have to show that something more seems to be happening in the UK. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I do think there's kind of uh, just a general kind of impression in the legal tech space that that some of those UK UK firms are, are kind of ahead of the curve here. Uh, also, some firms in Australia I've heard are, are quite forward thinking with the technology. Do you have any? I I know 
you're going to want to do some thinking about these things and some testing, but just as initial kind of hypotheses to test, do you have any reasons why you think that might be the case or what might be driving that distinction? I mean, everyone's been suggesting, well, alternative business structures, they have alternative business structures in the UK. Uh, and, you know, so that that could be driving some of what we're seeing here. And no, I, I can't I can't tie them. I can't show any sort of causality. Um, and I think as we have, you know, if I could go back and show some time trends, that would be interesting as well to see what did it look like in the UK before we saw alternative business structures. But, um, you know, that's the first thing I think coming to the forefront in everyone's mind that, well, you allow non-lawyer investment in, in the UK. And that's 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 uh, a way that in which we're hamstrung in the US. My personal opinion is that sometimes we have a little bit too much focus on the alternative business structures issue. I think a lot of organizations, if you said, okay, I'll give you $10 million tomorrow, what are you going to do? They don't necessarily really have a plan what they would do with that sort of investment. And there are a lot of things that could be done in the innovation front, improve processes, uh, better project management by the lawyers that the invest the amount of investment needed is is really not that great. So I mean, a lot of the innovation here is just becoming more client focused and asking how can we improve what we do, which uh, unfortunately there hadn't really been there hadn't nearly been enough of uh, leading up to very recently, and we need a whole lot more of in the legal industry. Uh, certainly agreed with that. Yeah, it's interesting that not only the the ownership structures. I, you know, I, I do wonder whether it might have something to do with a couple of other. You know, the the profitability of the law firms. You know, the profits per partner. There, there. It's a much leaner kind of budgetary situation for a lot of these UK firms, and they're also a lot larger, and they have you know many more offices and tend to have much higher numbers of lawyers, which implicates lots of knowledge management challenges, for example. So maybe there's some other realities happening there. Yeah, just a quick follow-up on that, Christian. Uh, you know, that is a good point, too. And when you look at the the law firm search hits, the innovation index, where it's broken down by different category, the hits we need to, to clarify, too, like when you look at the UK, we, we tend to be looking at the top UK firms because they're ones that are part of the global 100, whereas we went to a little bit deeper into the pool in the US down to the, the AMLA 200. So when you're talking about the average hits, we've got to recognize that that, in a way, weights it a little bit in favor of the UK. But on the flip side, that's, again, as I pointed out in the catalog, it's a smaller marketplace, but yet we found many more uh, concrete innovations to add to the catalog in the UK than we did coming from US firms. Yeah, that is interesting. It will be really interesting to normalize some of this data and, mm-hmm. and, and try to figure in the future about what mm-hmm. it actually means. Let's talk a right. little bit about what, what, what do you hope, specifically with respect to your project, what, what do you hope the, the kind of impact and effect of it will be? Well, I want lawyers to realize that that they need to innovate and that they need to to create a real a truly innovative culture in their organizations. And I think that there are a lot of different pieces to this where we need to be contributing. I think the law schools play play a great role. I think we can do much more in the law schools, prepare law students for uh, you know, for a world where things are changing and, and innovation has become the norm in, in every other industry, and, and I would say is quickly becoming the norm in, in the legal industry. So it's really a call to action. I mean, I feel like I was responding to Jim Sandman's call to action and, and what the things we've been trying to do here at Legal R&D at Michigan State is, uh, you know, call on the legal industry to act. And I think there's so many opportunities for law firms who are proactive, and there's data from other places. I mean, an Alt Men Wiles survey, for example, comes to mind showing that 
law firms who are proactive about approaching their clients about alternative fee agreements have those arrangements have been more profitable, for example, rather than sitting back and waiting until your client comes to you or worse yet, your client goes to someone else instead of you to, to propose these things. So I think, you know, just we need to be taking action. And I think you can really start in the law schools. The law schools should be aware of what's going on. Uh, the law firms, legal departments, I want legal departments looking at this and hopefully, you know, it should really be the law firms. I mean, I was a, I was a partner at a, at a big law firm and, and you now sometimes it's tough to reach out to the client and say, well, how are we doing? Um, but it's necessary. It's critical to do that and to build that relationship and keep working to improve what you're delivering. So where that's not happening though, the legal departments reaching out, doing that, driving some of the discussion. And again, a lot of this is, this is about access and, I think especially in the law schools, we should be thinking about how can we contribute to this? How can we innovate? How can we help improve legal service delivery? And it's the same thing in the law school. It shouldn't be a top-down approach. It's not like uh, you know our faculty is telling our students how to solve these problems. We're trying to create an environment that empowers them and gets them experimenting and trying things and understanding what's going on in the marketplace. And and, and that approach has generated a lot of students who've, who've been able to follow the things they're really interested and passionate about. And, and they've seen that, okay, there's a need in the marketplace for this. There are big law firms that'll hire me to help improve as a legal solutions architect, as a, as a project manager uh, in those kind of non-traditional roles, but also in other roles, working on blockchain, on artificial intelligence. And more and more clients now have, are deal, grappling with these same issues. You've got artificial intelligence, knowledge management, data how do we maneuver in this world? And if the lawyer is not aware of these technologies and how they might be used in businesses, and the lawyers aren't going to be prepared to to be the kind of counselors the, the client's looking for. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and one of the things that excited me about this index when I first heard about it, um, when, when you pitched us at the, the Legal Hackers Conference, is, you know, and, and this is informed a bit by having some experience selling technology into law firms, Law firms are very comparative, <laughs> you know, and they're, they're always looking around, well, what's the other guy doing? Well, what's our peer doing? And I think surfacing some of this information about who's doing what will create a bit of a race to the top here where people feel, oh, I need to be doing this and oh, I'm getting behind. Uh, and so just the transparency effects of creating the index itself, I mean, is something I think could have a powerful effect to, to kind of accelerate and facilitate that, that phenomenon you were, you were just describing. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, uh, it's, I think Jim Salmon talked about it being kind of a little bit of a carrot and a stick. And, you know, the carrot is let's shine a light on those firms who are trying to do things. Um, now, I'm careful about the saying that part of it is a stick, because, again, this is an incomplete measure. And if, if you're a law firm, you're not seeing it on this list. If you're a law student or if you're a client, you should be asking, how, how are you dealing with this with this discussion about innovation and technology? How are you how is your organization preparing for the way the marketplace is, is changing? And I hope you're, you're right that this will be just another thing that will create incentivize uh, continuing that discussion. And then I, I have a lot of people say to me, hey, Dan, I get it. I hear it. I, robot lawyers are coming to take my job. <laughs> what am I? What do I do about it? Right. Facetiously, they say that. And so I, I do think this is another area where seeing how other firms are innovating, seeing what the law schools are doing, hopefully the law schools continue to collaborate and contribute in this space. I mean, that's helpful. I, I, I think what we don't want to see, again, though, on the ranking, to your point, we need to see more differentiation in the law schools, law firms. 
the the law firms and law schools all look a lot more the same than they do different. And I think what we need is more differentiation in the marketplace. And uh, you know, so firms need to be trying different things and and talking, having great conversations with their clients. And figuring out what the clients need and experimenting to work and get there to provide greater value. Well, that that's a great segue to to kind of the last topic I, I wanted to explore with you, which is when we start looking at the types of innovation that the index is tracking. So these these indicators and and, and the types of efforts you're cataloging in the catalog. How do you anticipate? You know, panning out for a moment. How do you anticipate those innovations affecting the practice model or the business model of, of large law firms? So thinking about the AMLA 100 and the Global 100, the sorts of things that you're seeing gain traction when you look at that visualized data in the Legal Services Innovation Index, how do you anticipate that changing the way firms look and do business over the next 10, 20 years? Well, I think we're seeing quite a few firms add, you know, getting much more diverse in, in, in the way they deliver services and diverse in many different ways. And we're seeing diverse teams produce better results. A lot of the diversity, of course, um, that we're driving at in this innovation index is technologists, uh, data scientists, having these other skills. And I think you need a mix of not just the people who have PhDs in data science, but training what we call here at in the legal R&D program are T-shaped lawyers. And this came from the came from IBM really where they talked they realized their best consultants not only had deep information technology skills but skills in in adjacent areas project management, uh, client counseling, negotiation. Uh, and so we're seeing I think the need for lawyers like that. I mean if you're if you're talking about you're doing business with you know NetApp or Google, let's say, so I can talk about, I'd say Connie Brenton at NetApp or, or Mary O'Carroll at Google, and, and, and they come and talk to you as the lawyer and say, well, how are you using project management or data and artificial intelligence to get us better solutions? I mean, I don't think you're going to be able to say, well, hold on, let me call in our data scientists, right? You as the, the lead <laughs> lawyer need to understand how, that, how those disciplines fit into you delivering better solutions, not just cheaper but you're using those tools to get to better outcomes. And I think that's going to be one of the ways we're really going to see these organizations change. Right? We're going to have a much more a diversity of talent within the organization. And then you're going to have lawyers who know how to bring those people in and, and really manage a team. And, and um, they're going to understand how artificial intelligence works. They're going to insist that their, that their legal tech vendors uh, don't complexify, but explain things to them in ways that they can understand how it works and how it's going to deliver greater value. Uh, and they're going to have the knowledge and, and understanding to, to be able to engage in those discussions and, and ask those questions so that they can improve the, the services that they're delivering. And when they make those changes, um, do, would you anticipate when they start to, you know, right-size their budgets with better business intelligence and have more data-driven decision-making as opposed to doing some sort of manual market practice survey? Would you anticipate that it might drive down headcount, for example, or, or maybe decrease the leverage in law firms so that you have maybe fewer apart associates for every partner? Or do you, what are the knock-on effects of that, do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of people have talked about this a lot and are predicting the future. And it's it's kind of hard to say because I think there are a lot of generalizations. I mean, on the one hand, it's like we've got the two extremes. Robots are taking everyone's jobs. 
are don't worry, it's humans plus machines. And I think the answer is a little bit more in the middle. I mean, the, this idea that it's humans plus machines is kind of this idea that, yes, uh, Christian, if, if you go back into practice and we do an M&A deal, you're not going to spend 400 hours on diligence again. We're changing the way we do it. We're getting a lot smarter. But is there a way to find how we can use your time to do other things that could add a lot of value that would make a lot of sense to do those things? Um, you know, the world's getting more and more complex. I see more and more problems that lawyers should be thinking about solving, not fewer. So if we can get rid of this drudgery, this stuff no one wants to do. I mean, I can't imagine you went to Davis Polk because you were, you know, you wanted to do as much diligence as possible because you really thought that was going to make a difference in the world. So if we can figure out a way to automate some of that stuff, yeah, sure. The first, uh, you know, this is kind of the lump of labor fallacy, as people talk about it, that we've got a fixed amount of labor. And if we automate things, well, what's there going to be left to do? Well, I think as lawyers, given that we should be training them in law school, um, right, people to to think about how to solve other problems, how to solve really complex problems, work as part of teams and add value in many other ways. So I think there's actually a lot of opportunities out there, um, not for an AMLA 200 where, where all the firms look much more the same than different, but for lawyers generally, there's so many opportunities for lawyers to get engaged and provide value around rule of law, privacy, how does AI work, and in all these different areas. I mean, I can see a world where lawyers contribute a heck of a lot of value um, and find many more things to do to replace that time that they spent previously reviewing documents and doing drudgery. I personally very much agree with that. I think, I think there's a huge amount of value to be added. And bringing things back around to your early point about the, the broader mission of what you're trying to do to help increase access to legal services and access to justice, it, for every, every time a, a process you know, it becomes more automated or more streamlined or requires less manual labor at one part of the market, those very same technological tools that are facilitating that change are also allowing you know, economies of scale to be leveraged at another part of the market to make other tasks and types of client service that might have been financially impracticable in the, in the past now open for business. Um, and there are some mm -hmm. really interesting legal tech companies that are finding new markets that were previously considered to be too small and, and, and leveraging technological tools to be able to service lots of these clients all at once or through some sort of uh, hybrid technological advice model. So it, it's a very, very interesting time. Unfortunately, it, it's time for us to wrap up. Um, one last question for you, Dan. If, if the listeners have questions or are interested in learning more about the Legal Services Innovation Index or Legal R&D, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Sure. The best way is I'm on Twitter and uh, Dan Lina at D-A-N-L-I-N-N-A. Follow me, uh, tweet at me, be happy to, to respond to you. That's a great place to have a conversation. And if you're interested in innovation, you absolutely ought to be on Twitter. And then if you Google me, you can find my email address if you'd prefer to, to get connected that way. And I hope you check out the index at LegalTechInnovation.com. And then I blog a little bit at LegalTechLever.com. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, and, and congrats on launching Phase 1 of the Innovation Index. Thanks a lot, Christian. Great to be here. Absolutely. Well, we, well, we look forward to closely watching where it goes from here because it's, it's a very, very interesting project. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you have thoughts or questions about this episode or any other topic relating to associate development or legal tech and innovation, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us through our blog at blacklinesandbillables.com. Email us at podcast at blacklinesandbillables.com. Find us on LinkedIn or Facebook or 
as Dan says, tweet at us. Our handle is at BNB Legal, at BNB Legal. We'll be back again soon with our next episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.